Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. Welcome back to the 19th tee. Just marshy with you for this one. Drude's away on some work commitments, but I am very fortunate to welcome another playing partner in Queensland's own Maverick Antcliffe. Of course, the current leader on the Order of Merit of the China Tour. A handful of tournaments left in this season to hopefully secure his European Tour card. We're fortunate enough to grab some time with Maverick before he heads back over to China for those final few tournaments. It's a wide-ranging chat. We talk all stages of his golfing journey. We go right back to the very start where his grandmother introduced him to the game at the Bow Desert Golf Club in southeast Queensland, all the way through to his time now on the China Tour with his best mate, Connor Edmonds, on the bag. So I really enjoyed this one. It was great for Maverick to give us some of his time before heading back to China and we look forward to catching up with him again uh, across the Australian summer by which time he's hopefully secured his European tour card. So without any further ado, we'll throw to Maverick Ancliffe. Maverick, welcome to the 19th T. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, mate. Look, I want to take it right back to the start where we like to go with all of our guests first up. Uh, why golf? Why is the, the boy from Bow Desert chasing a little white ball around? Um, it's a pretty good question. Uh, I don't know, I just kind of played all sports growing up and just went out one day and just kind of got hooked, really. Where was it that that, uh, that first attraction began? I, I did read some of the Bow Desert Golf Club. Is that the origins of, of, of the, uh, the romance with golf? Yeah, that's basically it. Um, I, was, uh, I was actually knocking in a cricket bat and uh, my grandma came, she was visiting and she was like, you know, what are you doing that for? Just coming out and play some golf. And I was like, oh, yeah, it sounds better than doing this so went out and played nine at Bodez it and um yeah I came home that afternoon and I told dad that probably wanted to play a junior uh, like you know juniors and stuff on the weekends and yeah so grandma was in fact the uh, the driving force behind uh, the, the golf career yeah yeah she was yeah she um like when yeah when I was younger she was playing five days a week and yeah whenever I was at the golf course she was so did you pick it up Pretty uh, pretty quickly. Was it, were you one of those players that straight away you knew there was probably something something there for you in terms of your future in golf? Um, oh, I mean, it's hard to say when you you know when you're like eleven and twelve. But I uh, I just I just I just really liked yeah just going to the golf course and just practicing and you know there's so many different uh, aspects of the game and nuances and yeah it just uh, it just got me hooked from the beginning really um, you know go out after school every day and go play a few holes and go to the putting green and stuff like that. It was good. It's interesting, you know, because when you're, when you're young like that, you're 11, 12 years old, obviously um, a lot of kids, they tend to lean towards team sports for the, uh, I suppose the attraction, the camaraderie and, and, the, and, and the teammates in, in team sports. But you mentioned the nuances and the subtleties of the game. Was that something that you were pretty attuned to at a young age and something that you really kind of delved into early? Um. I guess, like, looking back on it, uh, it's probably one of the sports that um, probably wasn't, like, very good at, like, right out of the gate because, you know, if you're footy and stuff, like, you can just be faster than other kids and, you know, you're going to score tries and stuff. But 
Um, I played with a couple guys, like like guys that I knew when I was really young. We were around the same age, and you know, a couple of them beat me, and I was just like, oh, like you know. Then I kind of wanted to beat them, so then I'd go to the golf course more, and then this and that, and then you know, um, I think yeah, with grandma being at the golf course a lot, you know, um, kind of you know, you'd see like entry forms like for Greg Norman junior tournaments and golf Queensland events and stuff like that then play a couple of those you don't do so well but then you want to do better and so practice more and just kind of snowboard from there I think if I'm doing my maths right this is probably around the uh the early 2000s so is there a player that uh that caught your eye you, you know when when golf was just starting to become a a bit of a bug for you that you started to model your game on oh man I probably wouldn't be playing golf right now if it wasn't for Tiger Woods um, but then obviously like Scotty was really young, like, I mean, I would, yeah, it would have been like oh four oh five. I picked golf up. So, but yeah, like Adam Scott was on the scene. I was a big Sergio fan. Um, those are the ones that like stood out immediately when I was younger. And I know that you were a, uh, a product of the, the golfing factory that is the Hills International School down there in the back end of the Gold Coast. How, uh, how did you wind up at the Hills? What was your path? to getting into what, what has become a, a formidable, uh, I suppose, breeding ground for golfing talent. Yeah, um, I always wanted to go there when I was younger just because, you know, I've just been in golf school. It's only 15 minutes away from where I live. Um, so then, uh, yeah, I just, in grade 10, I had the opportunity to go there. And then mum works in Brisbane, so she just dropped me off in the mornings, picked me up in the Arvo. So it just kind of worked out really well. And, um yeah, I really enjoyed my time there. It was good fun. And you've got still quite a, a strong connection, uh, you know, to, to a couple of staff and, and still go down and use the practice facility. So obviously uh, a place that stayed with you well beyond your time there. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, after high school, I went to college. And then when I moved back, um, I was sort of doing like a little bit of practice out of Bad Desert. And I was still a member at Indrapilly at the time. But uh, I went in there one day just... I kind of got sick of the driving and I just pulled in and uh, talked to Rob and he just said, mate, like, do you ever want to come out and, and uh, you know, use the facilities, you know, more than welcome. And then, yeah, just kind of went from there. Um, been out there probably pretty much nearly every day since, I'd say. And you mentioned your college experience. Uh, what was the process behind being recruited out of your time at the Hills? Because obviously for a, a young kid from Bow Desert to go play NCAA Division One golf is a, is, a, is a big leap. So talk us through the journey that you took to get over to the States. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't really know what I was going to do in grade 12. Um, obviously, like, you know, when you're 17, it's pretty hard to make a decision what you're going to do or what you think you want to do for the rest of your life. So mum and dad always encouraged me to like try and do well in school and you know keep that option open um and then I went to UQ for about a week and I was like no this isn't for me so mum and dad made it pretty clear like if I wanted to play golf full-time I had to get a part-time job and all that and then I just yeah just started playing golf full-time um in 2011 it would have been and then had some good finishes, went over to the States that summer, played some summer tournaments. Um, I'd kind of sent out a few emails, you know, a few feelers to schools and stuff like that. And then uh, after making a couple of Australian teams and having some good results, uh, I got a few more offers. And then, uh, I mean, I, I signed 
to go to Augusta State without even being there. Right, I've been to Atlanta in Georgia. Uh, I really like it. It's a nice place. Southern hospitality is good. Weather's good. Doesn't get too cold. Um, but yeah, the main res- the main driver behind it would have been mum and dad just um, wanted me to get an education as well as obviously pursue golf, and that was probably the best best option. And obviously, the competition over there's world class. So it was a yeah, it was a great decision and um, a good pathway if you want to, you know, kind of kill two birds with one stone and work on your backup plan as well as the master plan, I guess. We've spoken to a few college golfers, Maverick, and they've mentioned the the draw of playing against elite junior talent or elite talent at your age. Was that a, a big draw card for you as well to know that if you go over there, test yourself against the best uh, that was going to drive you to, to really extract the best out of yourself as a golfer? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, um, obviously, where I went, it was a Division One school, but it wasn't... Uh, the school itself was Division Two with a Division One golf team. So with that, we weren't aligned with any conference. So we could pick and choose the tournaments we would play. And then um, our home tournament... Uh, was like a pretty big draw because they actually the teams that participated got um, practice round tickets to go to the Masters. So all the coaches obviously wanted to play there. So then we, you know, your trade starts with other schools and stuff like that. So we had a really, really, really good schedule. Um, yeah, played a lot of good golf courses, played against a lot of good players. Um, but yeah, definitely it was like the, the talent pool's good in Australia, but it's not very deep. Sport, especially it's getting better obviously but um at that current point in time it's um yeah it was definitely a big big draw being in augusta the natural question is uh, was there any time or any opportunity uh, to to walk the hello turf of augusta national uh yeah i've actually i've played it twice and then been to the masters um probably around probably average like three times a year for five years so yeah i've been on the property been very lucky to be on there quite a bit is it as i suppose uh, it's hard to actually probably come up with a word when when you've grown up as a golf fan watching from australia across the other side of the world in the early hours of the morning to aptly describe uh the, the property and, and and how special the course is but i suppose is it everything that you expect it to be when you walk through the gates yeah, it, honestly, it was probably a thousand times better than what I expected. To be honest, um, I'm I'm not like a I'm not a golf course guy. Like I just like playing golf. I like competing. You know, whatever it might be. Um, but in terms of like golf courses, like I'm you know you know like yeah, I'm not salivating at the the opportunity of playing a certain golf course, or whatever. But like going in there. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's, yeah, TV doesn't do it justice. Um, but then even, you know, like being fortunate enough to play, you get to drive down Magnolia Lane, you get to go eat lunch in the clubhouse, you get to go to the Champions locker room, you get to go to the Crow's Nest. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's unreal, to be honest. Your your college career was probably a great platform for you, your opportunity to turn pro. Like you look at, I suppose, your, your honour roll there. You you were involved in two Mideastern Athletic Conference Championships. Uh, you are an All-American scholar in 2016. When you came out the back of your time at 
at Augusta, were you feeling, uh, you know, completely ready? Do you, do you look back on that decision as, as a natural one, given the form you were in at the back end of your college career to turn pro? Um, I mean, that's a great question. Uh, yes and no. Um, I felt that, I felt coming out of college, my best stuff was definitely good enough. Um, played a lot of like college tournaments against a lot of good players and played well in some and not so good in some others. So I knew that my best stuff was good enough. The decision to come home to then further my career was probably the easiest thing. Just being back in Australia, like surrounded by my family, uh, and then obviously coach, physio, uh, sports psychologist, et cetera, et cetera. And then like, if you're going to cut your teeth, um, Australia is not a bad place to do it because it's quite competitive. Um, I mean, you're probably never going to feel 100% ready, but uh, I felt that, um, yeah, I mean, honestly, yeah, I just, I, I just had it in my head that I was going to do it at Queensland Open my first year back. And then, yeah, it would just, I was just going to do it, to be honest. What's the journey been like so far? I think that the, the perception of life as a golf pro may not necessarily match the reality of the grind week in, week out. So when you look back on your last couple of years since you made that decision to where you are now, how, how would you describe your time so far on, on the circuit? Um, well, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's up and down. Um, but I mean, without good time, oh, without bad times, you don't know what good times are. Um, but I mean, you know, that's any career, whether it's, you know, a trade or, you know, whatever you want to become a lawyer or, you know, whatever. Um, yeah, it's going to be, you know, good things that happen, bad things, little setbacks, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, uh, I mean, today, uh, yeah, uh, it's been, I would say it's been quite good, but obviously, you know, you're just working harder to keep getting better and, you know, everyone has goals and ambition and stuff like that. So you're just working towards the bigger picture. Um, but yeah, I mean, obviously pretty early into what I hope turns into, you know, it turns out to be a long career. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's been, it's been fun. It's, I mean, there's definitely nothing else I'd rather be doing. That's for sure. You've seen some already some, some unique uh, parts and corners of the world. Is that one of the things that I suppose you don't take for granted. It can be hard, I'm sure, to, you know, catch connecting flights and get under baggage restrictions and, and you know, be living out of your suitcase. But is the corners of the world that golf is taking you to and, and will continue to take you to, is that something that's not lost on you? Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Um, you know, I see people, you know, going to the same office every day or the same job site and stuff like that. But, um, yeah, I'm very fortunate that I get to uh, play, you know, across the world and you get to see some really cool things, be in some really cool places, experience new food, new culture, meet new people. Um, it's definitely one of the great things about um, being a professional golfer for sure. What's, what's the reality like day to day? I had to have a chuckle. Uh, Maverick, I was, I was listening to an interview just last week with Akshay Batia, the 17-year-old American who's just turned pro over in the States, and he was asked whether or not his life's changed much, and, and he said, not really, no, my, my agent organises all my flights and my hotels, and you know it's pretty much the same as what it was last week. Uh, now, I imagine that's probably the experience of only 
um, one to two percent of the most um, prodigiously talented players, especially if you're 17, you've just turned pro. I can't imagine that's life for uh, the average pro. So in terms of getting yourself, uh, you know, just from town to town in China, what, what's the what's the reality like for you on tour day to day? Um. Well, I mean, you could probably ask a lot of people. I'm probably one of the least organized people when it comes to stuff like that. Um, <laughs> but I mean, if I'm being completely honest, uh, you know, I kind of, I kind of know where I have to go and stuff like that. Um, I'm happy to book my flights and all that stuff. Like that doesn't bother me because I know certain flights I like to fly, get in at certain times, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone's different. So um, yeah, I mean, sometimes, you know, you have to kind of, scope out what the best option is if you're going to fly or catch a train in China or something like that or you know getting from country to country and stuff like that um but yeah it's uh you know if that's the biggest downfall of of the the job then it's definitely a lot better than most but um yeah it's uh you have to learn pretty quick you must I remember my first year you know asked different guys what they're doing and stuff like that and then you just kind of work it out for yourself and just realize like what you like to do and stuff like that so yeah the first probably six months it's pretty uh daunting you know you don't want to book the wrong flight wrong day get in the wrong time stuff like that but um now it's it's pretty straightforward to be honest and what about things that that, that the average golf fan who who watches the say the pga tour or the european tour quite religiously would, would take for granted things like caddies What's the situation when you rock up to different tournaments in terms of organising the person who's going to carry your bag for hopefully four days? Um, I'm pretty lucky. Uh, yeah, I'm pretty lucky. I mean, probably my bit more. Yeah, be my best mate, um, Connor Edmonds. Probably better give him a shout out. Last couple of podcasts. I, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, so. Connor's name because we're going to get there. But 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 tell tell us how you enjoy him carrying your bag. Oh yeah, no. So I will. I kind of fell into it. So like we were good mates when I, well, we only met when I first moved back. We were, I think we met at like an Interpilly pennant kind of day thing. And um, my first tourney at Queensland Open, I had a mate carry the bag and then I Mondayed into Aussie Open. So I get through on the Monday and I was like, oh, this is sweet, like all well and good. And then I was kind of dawned on me. I was like, oh, I don't have a caddy, eh? I called up Shredmar. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? You want to come down? So uh, I think my mum booked his flight, flew down, and then uh, he did a really good job. Like, he was great. And then a couple of weeks later, I Monday into the PGA down on the Goldie, and he did it again. And we just kind of went from there. Um, and then 17, like, I played a, a lot in China. Like, I played a full year up there. Uh, that was more just, you know, local caddy stuff like that. The tour is really good. They organise that stuff. Um, but then last year, Mainly, Aussie, he caddied, Connor caddied all the the main Aussie stuff, uh, you know, Aussie Open and Vic Open, all those. And then, um, yes, did some Asian tour stuff as well. So, so I'm taking him up. He's caddied, uh, he's actually played some this year, but he's also caddied earlier in the year and then caddied for me a few weeks in China and he's doing the, the next two weeks as well. When you say he does a good job, what, I suppose every player is unique and different, but what do you look for in your caddy? What is important in that relationship? Because I always find it interesting when best mates are in that partnership. You know, you look at Tommy Fleetwood and Finno, his caddy, you know, they've been, you know, mates for 15 years and obviously they know each other intimately, but that can probably obviously be testing at times as well. So 
when Connor's at his best, what's he what's he doing well for you as your caddy? Um, oh, that's a good question. Uh, he's well, he, we play a lot of golf together for starters, so he knows my game inside and out. And obviously, having another perspective is good, especially in certain situations. And then um, he's been with me, like like you know, missing cuts, and then you know, being in contention. Um, and then, you know, being in contention, falling away, being in contention, staying there. He's actually on the bag for one of my wins. So, like, he's pretty good at keeping level-headed. Uh, he doesn't, you know, get too wrapped up in it. Like, he's always just kind of in my ear. Like, he's really good at telling stories. So, we have a good laugh. You know, there's a fair few times I'll just be walking down the fairway and I have to stop. I remember in Korea, um, a few times, like, I... I couldn't, like, he would beat me to the ball because I'd just be in tears laughing up the fairway. Um, <laughs> so he's, he's just, he just keeps me relaxed because, like, I know what's going on um, in terms of, like, the golf stuff, like, what needs to be done, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, so he's just really good at just keeping me level-headed. Um, but then he's also good at, you know, when the conditions change, it gets really windy or, you know, things kind of start to happen that I don't really see as much because I'm kind of, you know, in a different a different frame of mind. You know, he's really good at pulling me up on that. And we have that trust, like, that obviously has been built through those tough times, good times, all the tournaments, all the reps. So, yeah, I know we just have, we just have good chemistry. And, um, you know, we can just hang out off the course as well and just keep it, keep it lighthearted so the weeks don't seem as long. Well, we look forward to catching up with Connor at some stage in the future to see if uh, he enjoys working uh, with you as a player as much as you do with his caddy. So I'm sure that the stories <laughs> will uh, will align. Now, you mentioned just there briefly um, playing in Korea. Uh, I just want to take a little bit of a tangent. Did you catch the, the B.O. Kim story? And I'm interested in, in your thoughts having played over there. Obviously, the remainder of the golfing world were outraged by the, the three-year ban for flipping the bird to yeah. the crowd. But I suppose what we don't understand is, is the, um, the, the subtleties of the Korean culture and, and that respect being uh, paramount. Uh, and I wonder, having played there yourself, were you, were you as surprised as everybody else at how harshly they came down on B.O. Kim? Um, yes and no. Uh, I was more surprised by his reaction, to be honest, because usually they're quite, not unflappable, but there's always, like, you, you play tournaments and stuff and everyone's quite um, aware of what's going on. Like I remember last year, like, Aussie Open, so you've got um, the walk from 11 green to 12. So the 12th green's right beside seven, uh, 17 green as well. And there's a massive grandstand. So there's a lot of people walking, cart path, you know, grass and rocks like it's just a lot of noise but as soon as like the quiet time goes up everyone's quiet where in Korea there's just always people just seem to be moving bags are rustling like there's just always constant noise so I was actually quite surprised the way he reacted because I thought he would be more accustomed to it if that makes sense yeah, absolutely. Which may which may well explain the fact that he, he came out almost immediately with a complete mere culprit and I suppose beg for forgiveness said he's yeah. not going to I suppose appeal. maybe he realised the error of his ways. I think it's as yeah. you say, you I, know, I, I do agree like with what you said though, like with their culture. Like I went to high school with a lot of cranboys and like I know a fair few of them. 
and like yeah respect is is a big pillar in their in their culture so um, it's, it's it's really an interesting one, Maverick, to be honest, because it's really easy for for 98% of people who either play or watch golf who aren't, um, you know, intimate with uh, their knowledge of the Korean culture or have played there like yourself to, to cast judgment from afar. But I suppose once you're in there and you understand it, maybe the uh, the reaction of the tour uh, isn't all that surprising, not least of which probably um, less surprising, as you say, than his reaction in general. Yeah. Um, it also like I, it could have been who he also like kind of flipped off. You know, you, you just don't really know who that guy was. It might have been the best mate of like the main sponsor's CEO or something. You know what I mean? You just don't really yeah, know. Absolutely. Well. That could have that could have played a part in it, but um, also the fact that it was well, it was televised. Obviously, everyone's seen it. So if he was like first group out on the Saturday and there were four people and he did it to one person, it probably wouldn't have been the same penalty a bit insane that i have no idea well it's certainly been a talking point it's always good (laughs) irrespective of whether it's good or bad news good to have more eyeballs on the great game now now going off on another um slight tangent i want to talk about your hair now as a man who uh myself uh, enjoys above average follicle structure on top i appreciate someone else who has a good head of hair but yours has been on quite the journey obviously long hair to start um, I understand not so long ago that you, you flipped a coin to decide whether or not you were going to keep it. Talk us through that decision. Yeah, so um, I, had, I had long hair for ages and then when I went to college, I kind of got it cut off, kept it short there for a bit. I actually grew it out one of the years, kind of got over it, cut it. And then I remember I was talking to Connor after I got my card in China in seventeen. And I was like, how am I going to get haircuts? And he was like, let's just grow it out. And I was like, ah, oh, that's fair enough. Like, it's no bother to me. I've done it before. I'll do it again. And then um, Connor kind of went through some personal issues with a girl. Um, and he kind of took it pretty heavy. And I remember one day, I was actually sitting at home. I think I was eating breakfast. And he was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to cut my hair. I'm like, what? And he was like, yeah, I'm going to do it. I was like, okay, whatever. And I was like, you can't just cut it, flip a coin. And he, so he, he sent me the video. He probably did it a few times, to be fair, just to get, <laughs> to get the result he was after. <laughs> yeah. And then he was like, all right, now you go. I was like, no, this, this wasn't part of it. I didn't sign off for this. And he's like, come on, if I'm going to do it, you got to do it. And I did it first go. And I was like, oh, well, kind of got to get it done. So then um, I didn't really tell anyone or anything. Came home. My dad, I walked to the door and dad was like, what are you? what have you done? And then, um, yeah, so then I think we just, he was always growing his back out after I got a few more haircuts and then I just kind of just let it go after NZ Open this year. Is there any correlation in your mind between uh, the the length of your hair and your performance? <laughs> um, nah. Nah, I don't, personally. It's but interesting. There could be something to it, so I'll just keep it. I'll just keep it going. Yeah, well, I think I think this is the the reason why I ask is you say that uh, you, you let it go from the New Zealand Open a little earlier this year. Um, uh, I know that you won't mind me saying it because I'm sure you thought it yourself. Form prior uh, to to your run in New Zealand um, wasn't where you'd want it to be. Since then, uh, absolutely remarkable. When I look here 
at the run since the NZ PGA Championship back in March. You've gone T21, 4th, 1st, 1st, 3rd, 9th, T6, 1st, T17, T2, T8, T4. So I would suggest potentially it is worth your time continuing to grow it out, Maverick. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'll, uh, I'll definitely take that into consideration. If it's not the hair, what's it been? What's, what's, what's been the turnaround since March? Because the form has been uh, quite, quite phenomenal, really, the run that you've been on. Yeah, oh, there's a few little things, I guess. It could just be the culmination of all of them. I don't really know. But um, I put in a new putter, New Zealand Open Week. Um, and yeah, I haven't really looked like turning anywhere else other than what well, other than to that, um, since then. But, um, oh, just little things, just uh, started working with a new sports psych. Um, but even, even before that, like, even just basically since probably before Aussie Open, like, I felt like I've been playing really good and stuff, just hadn't really put four rounds together. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm just kind of figuring that out with um, with my coach Grant, and uh, yeah, like after New Zealand Open, we had like a pretty bit, like pretty long conversation and stuff because I actually played the Saturday and Sunday in the teams event for New Zealand Open, and like I played quite well, and like looking back on it, I had like a I started the second round quite poorly, but. Um, other than those four holes, I've basically played well enough to, you know, to, to finish quite well in the tournament. So, like, I kind of changed, like, the way I, you know, looked at things and what I was focusing on and stuff like that. And, um, yeah, I guess just kind of been rolling with that ever since and then holding a couple more putts here and there and thinking a little bit, bit better. And then obviously the hair's longer, so and obviously growing out your hair, yes, and... it all rounds back to yeah. the, the <laughs> Samson-like long hair. I'm curious, Maverick, are there things in your game that you recognise uh, in yourself that, that are an indicator that you're on, that things are clicking, that things are going well? Because you always hear about players knowing the subtleties in their swing that they can feel that aren't right. But I'm wondering if the inverse is true as well. Are there things that you can feel uh, as you're walking through a round to know today is going to be a good day? Oh, um, I don't know. Um, or do you not think about yes it that much no. and you just play naturally? I, yeah, honestly, I'm just trying to, honestly, once I get to the first team, I'm just trying to hit my tee shot and then find it and hit it again. And just kind of keep it as simple as possible, really. Because, uh, I mean, so many times, you know, you, you talk about, you. I've, I've talked to mates and stuff this year and, they're you know they're they're telling like that we just have a conversation like oh you know i've seen it so good on the range and you know first few holes i've seen it good and then you know it's made a bogey out of nowhere and this and that so like sometimes even when you feel like it's good you kind of don't focus as much if that makes sense and then you kind of make that soft error or go for a par five into them when you you know you it's probably a better layup and et cetera et cetera and you make a soft six or something like that um, so yeah, I mean, I just, yeah, I just try to just approach it as one shot at a time and just kind of keep it like that, really. You mentioned that you're working with a, a new sports psych. How is that something that, that they fashioned into your game in terms of taking as much thinking out as possible and just playing as, uh, as much on instinct as you can rather than being in your own head? 
Yeah. Yeah. Not without uh, giving away state secrets of your fantastic form, of course. No, no, no. I I mean, I was always under the belief that, you know, you had to you had to feel good and you know, everything had to be, you know, running on all cylinders to play well, but um you, even when you play well, you, you look back on it and, you know, you hit poor shots here and there. It's just how you deal with it and then where your focus goes to after that, you know, if you hit a poor shot rather than just assuming you've made a bad swing, you know, you can assess it um, honestly, you know. If it was a bad decision, bad swing, um, poor club choice, misjudge the wind, wrong shot choice, et cetera, et cetera. Like, there's just so many variables. So rather than just, you know, getting in your head and just, you know, I guess – you know, just thinking about all the things that went wrong and stuff like that, just kind of putting it aside, focusing on the next shot, just doing the best you can with that next shot, hanging tough when it's, you know, not going your way, whatever, because it's going to turn around. Like over 72 holes, it's a very, you know, it's a long game. So anything can happen, really. So just kind of realising that it's, you're going to have bad thoughts and just realising it's okay to, for everything to not be okay and just dealing with it the best you can. You mentioned feeling good to play good. I imagine that the time in between tournaments is just as important uh, in that goal uh, as your time over the ball. So what do you do uh, away from golf that takes your mind off it? Because you can't always be on. You need to have some downtime. So what does downtime for the Maverick look like? Um, Like downtime, like in my weeks back at home or like just in between tournaments? Oh, probably a bit of both. What are your interests away from golf that allow you to to switch off? Because I imagine if all you were thinking about ever was golf, you'd burn out pretty quickly. So what is it that you do? Oh yeah. To to take to take the mind off things. Oh, just about anything really. Um, I mean, I'm, I love all sports. So I just follow sports. Um, hang out just with mates, hang out with girlfriend, friends, family. Um, yeah, just yeah, just whatever really whatever's going on or you know i've got a bit of a rubber arm so if anyone wants me to do something <laughs> that can go good and bad which good. To, yeah which which isn't good when it comes to friday night you know but yeah <laughs> the friend that always answers his phone hey that's maverick and cliff yeah yeah that nah, connor's had to make a few uh few long drives out the bed as to pick me up just because i don't want to drive home the next day so <laughs> I tell you what, the more you mention Connor's name, he sounds like an exceptional friend. I, I truly am looking forward to getting the other side of the story sometime in the future <laughs> yeah. from Connor. I'm not sure it'll be as rosy, maybe coming back. Tell me, um, what are you like as a front runner? Because you're at the at the front of the order of merit at the moment on the China Tour. You've got a handful of tournaments left. Um, the the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow is a European Tour card. How does this sit with yeah. you? Do you prefer being a front runner, or are you conscious? of those nipping at your heels? How does it sit with you? Um, yeah, uh, once again, I mean, uh, I'd definitely rather be in front than behind. I mean, especially with, uh, especially with how many tournaments are left, you know, there's, um, there's only three, but with obviously the next couple being large money and stuff like that. Um, I've, no, I've never led an order of merit, except, you know, but since the first two weeks, uh, you know, Grant and I sat down, had a coffee before a lesson and just kind of went over things. Obviously, I, I just went up to China just kind of filling time just between Asian tour events and stuff like that. And then I knew that the, obviously you could 
you know, get a European card if you play well. And um, obviously starting well, then I had to kind of reassess things and make China a focus. So uh, our, well, our goal was just to just to keep doing the little things well, um, you know, just your daily things and just checking in and um, just keep getting better. You know, there's no reason to not do that. Obviously, you don't want to get complacent and stuff like that. Um, is that so difficult? Is it difficult not to get complacent? Because I imagine there's probably two trains of thought, one that you don't want to entertain, but you can't help. And one that you'd be focused on in terms of going to these last three tournaments. Do you continue to attack every um, 72 holes like you have the previous ones? Or uh, are you out there protecting a lead? I imagine that you don't want to entertain that, but that can't help but sneak into your, into your brain. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, like I was, like I said, oh, well, yeah, like I was saying, the um, the goal was just to to go up there and continue to to just play well, and then you know just build on that on that lead. Um, and it's funny, the last stretch up there, we had three tournaments. Um, so the first week, uh, clubs got lost. You know, kind of things weren't really going that well, and then. Uh, got my clubs, ended up finishing second or tied second. And then the next week, I think I finished eighth or something. But like I was kind of not playing very well, shot like bogey 365 on the last day, kind of like scooted up the leaderboard. And then the last tournament finished fourth. And I was kind of sitting, Connor and I was sitting in the lounge after heading back. And I was like, I, I kind of felt like I hadn't done. Well, I hadn't played my best, but I'd still managed to build on that lead. So just go, like, I mean, I'm just going to treat the tournaments as if they're any other tournament and just keep doing what I've been doing since the first first two events. Just finally, Maverick, uh, obviously we are um, hoping and, and, and wishing and, and expecting you to, to finish off the season the way in which you've played all throughout and secure that European Tour card. And, what will it mean to you uh, coming off the back of that uh, and having secured your, your future to come home and, and play in front of home crowds? There's always that that question that dangles over the head of Aussie players um, at all different levels, whether it's the ones um, playing on the PGA Tour or, or other tours around the world, the importance of coming home for the summer and the big events, particularly that we have this summer with the President's Cup on home shore. So what does it mean to you to come home and play that that circuit over the uh, the summer months back here in Australia? Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable. Aussie Open, Aussie PGA. I mean, they're just great tournaments. Yeah, it's always fun just, you know, being at home. Yeah, I mean, it's awesome playing. And especially, you know, tournaments you grow up watching when you're a little kid. And I was fortunate enough to play well in Aussie Open last year. And, you know, uh, third last group, crowds are, you know, a few deep and lying in the fairways. I mean, it's unbelievable experience. And, um, yeah, I mean, Honestly, it's, uh, yeah, it's really cool, to be honest. Well, we can't wait to have you back here in the summer. But most importantly, the, the, the thing to focus on now are those final three tournaments, as, as you mentioned, and, and securing that European Tour card for next year. So, Maverick, really appreciate your time joining the, the 19th too. We wish you the very best of luck uh, for those three tournaments. We'll be keeping a keen eye and, and look forward to having you back on once you've secured that European Tour card. And, and most importantly, uh, once you've got a, a very, very long head of hair, I assume. 
good man, Maverick. Thanks for joining us. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me.